Well, good morning again. Uh, as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you open to Matthew chapter 5? We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 20 today. And the passage we are looking at this morning talks a good deal about God's law. Jesus says in an astonishing way what his relationship to the law is and what our relationship to the law is as Christians. And I think it's worth saying up front that there is a lot of confusion among Christians about the law. Some of you may walk around with constant shame and guilt because you misunderstand the law. And you treat it like it's the way you are made right with God. So your failure to keep the law in your mind has threatened your right standing before God. Some of you also may not understand what the point, what the purpose of the law is. Didn't Jesus come to do away with all that rule-following stuff? Aren't we past all that silly stuff in Leviticus about mixing fabrics and eating the wrong kinds of food? I thought we weren't under the law, but under grace. Some of you may hate discussions about the law, because that's all you ever heard about when you first became a Christian. Don't do this. Don't do that. Stay away from them. And so you tense up every time Christians start talking about God's law and obedience. Jesus has plenty to say to all of us in here today about God's law. And what he is going to say, as always, will cut against and correct all of us and our various misunderstandings about his law. But one of the reasons we have such misunderstandings about God's law, His rules, His commandments, is because we have read some passages in the Bible in isolation from the rest of the Bible. We have failed to read all of the Bible in light of the rest of the Bible. And so today, I do want to make sure we understand where we are, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, the whole point of Jesus coming into the world is what? What did the angel say to Joseph about Jesus' name in Matthew chapter 1? He said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So that is the point of the Son of God being born of a virgin and living as a human and dying and rising again. He has come to save us from our sins. We are lawbreakers. Just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have broken God's commandments, and so we are corrupted by sin, and we have condemnation hanging over us. Jesus has come to save us from the consequences and the stain of our sin. Do you remember what he said about how we come to him for that saving and for that forgiveness? We are rebels of the king. Do you remember what he says when he announces that the kingdom has come into the world? Repent. Repent, he says, 
in Matthew 4. And John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, Repent, turn from your sin and rebellion, and come to Jesus. Trust in Him instead of trusting in yourself. He doesn't require six months of perfect obedience before you can come to Him or some display of discipline to prove you really hate your sin. No, He says in Matthew 11, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call isn't to clean yourself up. It's to come to Jesus so that He can clean you up. I came not to call the righteous, Jesus says, but sinners. This is the way of the gospel. This is the promise that God gives. It is forgiveness of our sins and broken laws. Jesus does not come asking for a list of good works to outweigh all of your sins. And so, when we come to Matthew 5, and this section called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about what His call is to those who have become His disciples. He's not suddenly switching things up on us and giving us another route to salvation. If repentance and forgiveness doesn't work for you, maybe you can keep all these laws and be accepted by God. That is not what He is saying at all. He makes clear in the Beatitudes, and he makes clear of that at the end of chapter 7. Jesus is not telling us how to become a new creation. He is telling us how to live as new creations that he has made us into. He is describing the life of those who have already become his disciples, not giving us five steps for how to become a disciple. And I know that is a lot up front, but it's important for us to see that so that we can properly hear what Jesus is going to say today. He's going to make some astounding claims about the importance and endurance of God's law. But if we are going to hear those claims as ways we can justify ourselves or make God love us, we are going to be doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus is calling us to. We are going to treat God's law like a cruel hoop He has given us to jump through instead of a gift pointing us to the path of life. So with that in mind, let's turn now to Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20, and hear the words of Jesus. But before we do that, let's go to our Father and ask for help in hearing His word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at it in two halves. We're going to look in the first half, in verses 17 through 18, at what Jesus says about his own relationship to the law. And then we're going to look in verses 19 to 20 about what he says about the Christian's relationship to God's law. But first, Jesus sets all of this up by talking about his relationship to the law and the prophets in verse 17. And then he says just the law in verse 18. And while you and I hear the word law and probably just think of the commandments that are given in the Old Testament, Jesus is talking about much more than that. He's referring by those terms to the entire Old Testament, the entire Hebrew Scriptures. The law for Jewish people was a reference specifically to the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But it was often a reference to the entire Old Testament. Notice that Jesus is talking about the same thing when he says the law or the prophets in verse 17, and then just the law in verse 18. He's using a part to talk about the whole. The key here is to realize that Jesus is not just talking about a subset of the Old Testament, as if what he says is true for Genesis and Deuteronomy, but isn't true for 1 Kings and Nehemiah. He is talking about the entire thing. This is important because of how comprehensive Jesus is going to be in verses 17, or rather verses 18 and 19. But it's also true, we'll see as we work our way through this passage, that Jesus does start to lean into the law specifically as the commandments of God. You see in verse 19 when he talks about the least of these commandments, and then talks about our righteousness in verse 20. So his statements here are going to be as comprehensive as the entire Old Testament, but they end up focusing us in on the commandments and rules of God in particular. And as we look at the text, we see that before Jesus says anything about us and how God's law relates to us, he says something about himself and his own relationship to God's law. And he makes a statement that may sound familiar and normal to us, but we need to be careful not to let that familiarity take away the shocking nature of what Jesus is is saying. Let's hear his words again in verses 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The key for us here is going to be in those two words that Jesus talks about, uses to talk about his relationship with the law. He says he has not come to abolish the law, but rather he has come to fulfill the law. Those two words, abolish and fulfill, are where we are going to sit. The word abolish means to destroy. 
or overthrow or tear down. Jesus uses this same Greek word when he talks about the temple in Matthew 24. They leave the temple and his disciples look back and say, look at the temple, look at all the buildings. And Jesus says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That word thrown down in Matthew 24 is the same word for abolish here. So Jesus uses this word to say what he is not doing to the law, what he is not doing to the Old Testament scriptures. He is not abolishing them or destroying them or throwing down God's law. Clearly, this is a question that was being asked about Jesus. Jesus is doing something new. He's coming and claiming a new authority and a new situation in Israel. He's the new king who is bringing an eternal kingdom. And so the question arises, what about the law? What about the Old Testament? Is all of that old news now? Are you getting rid of it all now that you are doing something new? And to that question, Jesus answers, not at all. Do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy or throw down the law, the Old Testament. That is not at all what I am doing. In fact, in verse 18, he says it even more strongly. He begins with this formula to get our attention. Truly, I say to you, the Greek word there is amen, which means truly or it is so. Jesus is saying, listen up. Pay attention. What I am about to tell you is the truth. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. First, he makes this grand statement. Until heaven and earth pass away. This draws us back to the creation story. Remember Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are the two major parts of the created universe. So Jesus, here in Matthew 5, is saying, until the created universe passes away, until all of creation is undone. And then he makes a reference to two parts of the law. And I want to explain them a little bit so that we can see what Jesus is saying and how particular he is being about the law. He could have just said, none of the law will pass away. None of it will be abolished. But he doesn't say it in generalities. He gets very particular. The first part of the law he mentions is an iota, which is a Greek letter. It's actually the smallest Greek letter. It's really just a little line. It doesn't even have the dot above it like our English I does. It's a tiny little thing that seems so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. And Jesus says the whole creation will end before even the smallest letter in the alphabet is taken away from God's law. The second part of the law he mentions is a dot. The word here is really the slightest stroke of a pen. Usually a stroke that distinguishes one letter from another. So like in English, the little mark on a Q, on a capital Q that separates it from a capital O. 
or the little horizontal line on a lowercase e that distinguishes it from a lowercase c. That smallest little difference, that line where it's hard to tell if your pen or pencil even touched the paper, all of the universe will come undone before one of those little marks falls out of God's law. The French reformer John Calvin says, Sooner shall heaven fall to pieces and the whole frame of the world become a mass of confusion than the stability of the law shall give way. Brothers and sisters, Jesus could not have stated more dramatically his affirmation for God's law. There is not one part of God's law that we can look at and say, yeah, that was a little silly. We don't really need to pay attention to that anymore. Or I think God got a little overzealous when he made that rule. Surely, if he knew then what we know now, he wouldn't have said that. We don't do away with laws because we think they are silly or politically incorrect or ignorant. There are Old Testament laws that are no longer in effect for Christians, which we'll see more of in a second and more as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. But it is so important for us to see that they haven't gone away because they are silly or ignorant, but because they have been transformed by Jesus. To get ahead of ourselves a little bit, they have not been abolished. They have been fulfilled. We do not have a religion that is revolutionary that has come in overturning everything that came before it. Jesus doesn't come in with a red pen and start scratching out a bunch of things in the Old Testament. He doesn't come in to correct the commands and rules that God gave to Israel. We have to put to death this wicked idea that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Or that God the Father is really strict and demanding, but God the Son comes in the person of Jesus and He is chill and merciful. That is not what we believe. We believe in one God who has consistently revealed Himself from Genesis to Revelation. That God of the Old Testament is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. And he comes to us here and looks at the revelation of God that he has given before and says to us, I didn't come to take away one single letter or stroke of the pen. It will all endure as long as the heavens and the earth endure. So Jesus has not come to abolish the law. But what has he come to do to it? He tells us in these verses that he has come to fulfill it. Verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he mean that he has come to fulfill the law? Remember, we've seen this word fulfill several times already in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah by being born of a virgin in chapter 1. He fulfilled the story, the narrative of Israel by going away into Egypt and then coming back to Israel in chapter 2. He fulfilled all righteousness by being baptized by John in chapter 3. Now he says that he has come to fulfill the Old Testament law. There are at least three things that Jesus could mean when he says that he has come 
to fulfill the law. First, he could mean that he has come to fulfill the law by his own perfect obedience to the law. Remember, the law was first given as a covenant of works to Adam, that he was required to obey in order to gain eternal life. Adam failed. And for Jesus to fulfill the covenant of works, he would have to obey God's law perfectly. The second thing he could mean is that he has come to fulfill the law by performing the saving acts that the law's sacrifices demanded and also foreshadowed. The law required atonement for sin. And what we learn in Hebrews is that the blood of goats and bulls could never truly atone for sin. So Jesus' sacrificial death fulfills the law in this way. The third way that Jesus could be using fulfill here is that he fulfills the law by his teaching. By teaching us the true and full and complete sense of God's law. And while those first two are absolutely true and taught elsewhere in Scripture, in these verses, Jesus is clearly saying the third. He has come to fulfill the law in that third way. He has come to give us a complete and full understanding of God's law, which is what he is going to do in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where we really begin to see how radical Jesus' claims are. Jesus has spoken unashamedly about how enduring the Old Testament law is. Heaven and earth will pass away before even the tiniest letter or stroke of the pen passes away from God's law. But in the same breath that he tells us the importance of that Old Testament law, he also tells us that the true and complete meaning of that law is found in him. This is exactly what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's telling them that the whole point and purpose of the Old Testament is found in him. The old Princeton Seminary professor Gerhardus Voss said it like this, Jesus regards the whole Old Testament movement as a divinely directed and inspired movement that has its goal in himself. So that if he himself were taken away, the Old Testament would lose its purpose and significance. Every word, every letter of the Old Testament will endure in importance until heaven and earth pass away. And not one word of it makes any sense outside of Jesus. He is the one who brings the full meaning and understanding of God's word. He is the completion of the story. He is the fulfillment of its purposes. And, and this is the right way to understand what the rest of the New Testament says about some of the Old Testament laws no longer being binding for Christians. We will be told that the food laws and the sacrificial laws and the laws that govern the nation of Israel are no longer in effect in the same way for us. But it's not because those laws were silly or ignorant or unenlightened. The reason they are no longer binding for us is that they were shadows and copies. Jesus has not come to abolish or destroy any of them, but to fulfill them. 
He has come to bring the fullness of the meaning of these things to light. It's what he teaches us in verses 17 and 18. And once Jesus makes clear his own relationship with the Old Testament law, he then turns to the Christian's relationship to the law. Let's read again verses 19 and 20. He says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing Jesus tells us about the Christian's relationship to the law is that we are not to relax any of God's laws. The word translated relax there means to loosen or release or untie. It's used in Matthew 21 too, where Jesus tells his disciples to go and get him a colt, and he tells them to untie it and bring it to him. Just as Jesus says that not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law, so he also says that we shouldn't loosen or relax one single command. And this should give us pause in our Christian life. It should give us pause for the way that we think about and talk about God's law. There are always going to be some laws and commands that rub against different groups or different generations or different people. And when they do, we are going to be tempted to relax those laws, both for ourselves and for others. Laws about sexuality, whether it be living together before marriage, or homosexuality, or divorce, or pornography. Laws about money, do not covet. We're commanded not to be excessive. We are commanded to give money away and to give it away cheerfully. Laws about not working on Sunday and worshiping with God's people. We are tempted to relax these laws. And Jesus especially points out that we are tempted to teach others to relax them. We might do this in a well-meaning way, trying to bring relief to those weighed down with guilt, perhaps. And we talked at the beginning about how prone we are to treat God's law incorrectly as a way to justify ourselves or to earn God's favor. And so we must always tell others what the law is, not a hoop to jump through, but directions for the path of life. But we must teach it. Jesus warns us here. We are not being cool or winsome or humble when we teach people to ignore God's laws. David says in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. When we teach Christians to ignore God's law, we aren't relieving them of a burden. We are robbing them of a gift. So that's the first thing Jesus teaches us about our relationship to the law. We are not to relax even the least of his commandments. The second thing Jesus says is found in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? 
How can our righteousness exceed the scribes and Pharisees? They're like the most righteous people ever, right? I think this is one of those verses that we have sorely misunderstood. People use this as a verse to show how impossible it is to keep the law perfectly. See, Jesus is setting an impossible bar for us to show us that we can't do it. And that's true. Hear that. It is impossible to keep the law perfectly on this side of the fall and this side of glory. But is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he calling us to something impossible just to show us our despair? What does Jesus tell us about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees elsewhere? In Matthew 6, it's almost certain that he is describing the scribes and Pharisees when he talks about the hypocrites who sound the trumpet when they give to the needy, who pray on street corners so people will praise them, who disfigure their faces when they are fasting so people will know they are fasting. They may tithe on their tiny spices, but they've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus tells us they pretend to be righteous, but are full of unrighteousness internally. And they make up laws to obey so that they can ignore God's law. In fact, it seems that the whole point Jesus is making in the Sermon on the Mount is that the scribes and Pharisees are not actually righteous. Jesus says their righteousness is like a cup that is clean on the outside, but on the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. He says that they are like whitewashed tombs that outwardly appear beautiful, but inwardly are full of death and uncleanness. If you mirror that kind of righteousness, he says, that hypocritical, showy righteousness, then just like the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is calling us to instead is a righteousness that is the opposite of hypocritical, showy righteousness. He is calling us to holistic righteousness, not just in your actions when you are seen, but in your actions when no one but God can see. Not just in what you do, but in your words and even your thoughts. He is calling us to a true and complete righteousness, a righteousness that doesn't see God's law as some annoying thing that I have to obey to get Him to like me, or a public standard that I can use to show people how great I am, but a direction for the life of a new creature in Christ. He's calling us to view the law as a gift to show us how to live the life that God has always called us to, a life that becomes salt and light to the world around us, a life of love for God and our neighbors and even our enemies. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It isn't about jumping through hoops. It isn't about beating other people over the head with the law. It isn't about trying to get God to like us by our good works. It is about the life of a new creature in Christ. And a community that is, an out, that is one of the outposts of the new creation. As we will find out later in the New Testament, it is about life that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and bears the natural fruit of that Spirit. 
This is the good life. This is the life that forgiven sinners are called and invited to. And this is the life that is only possible because it is our Savior who calls us. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are so prone to wander. So prone to call what is evil good and what is good evil. We pray that you would open our eyes. That you would cause us to see the goodness of your law because it calls us and directs us to you and the way of life that you have set out for us. And we pray also that you would change out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh so that we might delight in you and in your law. We pray that we would not misunderstand, that we would see Jesus as the Savior of sinners, but also the one who calls us to a life of joyful discipleship. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.